we are in a sermon series overheard at Starbucks as we think together about some questions that we hear and talk about over coffee. Uh, I remind you of this uh, remind you of this last week, but on the front of your bulletin, you will find the topics and the adjusted schedule because of the snow day. But we want to challenge and invite you to bring people with you and to pray for me uh, as we prepare uh, to worship together and to discuss together these important topics. I'd like for us to take a few moments this morning and bow our heads and uh, enter into God's presence to have a time of silence, to have a time of uh, just being and listening to God, and then I'll lead us in a prayer. We thank you, God, for every person gathered here for this divine appointment of worship, for this time to listen and to reflect, to confess our sins, to acknowledge our needs, to pray for a fresh filling of your spirit. And on this weekend, when we celebrate the life and legacy of Martin Luther King, Jr., we pray that we might truly, as individuals, as a church, as a people, be honest uh, about the struggles in our land for justice. We pray that through your spirit you might give us victory over hatred and bigotry, give us insight into our own embedded assumptions about our own superiority over other people, and forgive us for our sins uh, of neglect. We pray that through Jesus' spirit that we might begin to see as Jesus sees the issues of race and poverty and justice in our land that you will lead us to be your faithful witnesses to the difference that Jesus Christ can make. We pray for those in our congregation with burdens, illnesses, grief, family struggles, financial stresses, job uh, tension. We pray, dear God, that you might bless our children and youth and adults dealing with temptation, dealing with uh, the challenges of living, We pray that every day we might be reminded of your great love and your power to make a difference. So feed our hungry souls as we worship and as we open your word together and be honored by all that we offer you in our attention and our very best thoughts and our very best words. We pray in the name of Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. I invite you to open your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 through 18, the Scripture will also be on the screen. Uh, We have Bibles uh, with the hymnals. If you want to borrow a Bible, I'll read it aloud and invite you to uh, follow along silently and prayerfully. And I invite you to stand as I read the Scripture aloud. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, beginning in verse 13. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, about about those who have died, so that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have died. For this we declare to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will by no means precede those who have died. For the Lord himself, with a cry of command, with the archangel's call, and with the sound of God's trumpet, will descend from heaven, 
and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up in the clouds together with them to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. The word of the Lord for us. May he bless it. You may be seated. Well, the second coming of Jesus, that's a very, very complex topic. And uh, to whom do we turn for help with very, very complicated topics? You guessed it, Yogi Berra. Yogi can always help us uh, because he had this way of cutting through stuff and and saying things in a little bit of a backwards way that ended up making a lot of sense. For example, one of the things that Yogi said was, it's getting late early. And uh, he was telling the truth because life goes by fast. It gets late early, in case you hadn't noticed it. Life is flying. But not only that, God's consummation, the completion of God's history is moving very surely toward God's intended purpose, and every day takes us closer to that, so Yogi was right. Here's a second Yogiism that you might find helpful. It's difficult to make predictions, especially about the future. He, uh, he was right, wasn't he? It's very difficult to make predictions, especially about the future, but that doesn't keep people from trying. There have been so many books written about the second coming of Jesus. There have been so many charts made and so many... Uh, CDs and DVDs sold and so many TV and radio programs about just exactly what's going to happen when and, and you, would, you would think that somebody had an inside track. But here's the truth. The Bible says the only person in the cosmos, the only person in the cosmos who knows when Jesus Christ is going to return is God. Mark 13, 32 says the angels don't know, not even the Son of Man knows. It's God's secret. It's God's action. And so we need to not get all tangled up with all of those uh, other kinds of confusing thoughts. It seems like when it comes to the second coming of Jesus Christ, um, we fall in either one of the two ditches uh, in terms of the church teaching and preaching about it. Either uh, that's all the church talks about, And not only does the church talk about it constantly, but the church gives the impression that uh, it knows exactly when and how the return of Christ is going to happen. It frightens people. It it appeals to fear. It it appeals to all sorts of of strange emotions within people. And and that's one ditch. The other ditch is out of embarrassment uh, because of that first kind of uh, action. The church says nothing about the second coming of Christ, nothing about the end times, and, and that's, that's not helpful either. Uh, I guess there is uh, about us all this desire to know, this desire to explain things, this desire to have it all wrapped up. Uh, I heard about a preacher who started his sermon about the second coming of Jesus Christ with a grand introduction. He said, today, I am going to explain the unexplainable. I'm going to define the indefinable. I'm going to ponder the imponderable, and I'm going to unscrew the inscrutable. And I guess if we could, we would take our hands and we would unscrew the inscrutable, and we would just open that jar, and and we would like to have it all uh, worked out, but it doesn't work that way. 
Uh, and speaking of speculation that is uh, not always grounded uh, in our best thoughts, uh, I, I want to share some things that may disappoint you about uh, the second coming of Christ. I want to I share some things that you might not agree with. Uh, it seems like this whole sermon series overheard at Starbucks, I'm having to do this disclaimer. You, this may make you mad. You might not like this. I've decided to designate uh, a minister of complaining each week. And uh, this week it will be Rod Maples. So if we could put his cell phone number on the screen, no. Uh, if you don't like my sermon, just talk to Rod. He's available anytime. Well, here's the first thing I want to say, and I don't mean to offend you, but you need to hear this. If you own a Schofield Study Bible, the sacred scripture part of that is inspired. The notes at the bottom of the page are not. They're one person's interpretation of the end times. The same goes for the uh, book series, the, the fictional series, Left Behind. They are just that, fiction. One approach to how the end of the world might be, but they are not necessarily the only approach. There are many theories about the sequence of events, about things that will happen and the order of things at the end. And there are, they are just that. They are theories that, that we can't always hang our hat on because they're just, they're just speculation that take a little bit of Scripture and then take a, a lot of uh, license with hanging some verses together. I remember years ago I was preaching a renewal revival week uh, for a pastor uh, in Arkansas. And I remember exactly, it was a Sunday afternoon, we were sitting in the pastor's car and we were just talking shop, we were talking church and theology, and the pastor was very disappointed to find that I did not agree with his understanding of the end times and the sequence of events with the second coming of Christ. In fact, he was not just disappointed, he looked at me and he said, I just really don't think you could be a Christian unless you agree with my interpretation of the second coming. But he let me finish preaching that week, so... What a, what a response. You know, Ray Summers, who taught theology in New Testament, said that there are really about three things we can all agree on related to the second coming. Number one, Jesus is coming back. Uh, and he's... He's going to gather the living and the dead in Christ. That's the first thing. He said the second thing is when Christ returns, there will be judgment. We talked a little about that last week. And the third thing is that Christ will establish his eternal rule, his eternal kingdom. That much we can agree on. And Summer said when you get much beyond that, you start speculating and you start being on very, very thin ice. And he said, when you start becoming more dogmatic and assertive about things beyond those three, he said, often confusion reigns. Confusion reigns. And he was right. Well, there was confusion in Paul's day when he wrote this First Thessalonians letter. And by the way, of all of our New Testament writings, we think this was the earliest writing. First Thessalonians was probably the earliest letter penned by Paul, the earliest document 
chronologically in our New Testament. The Gospels actually came together later than this in terms of being collected, written down and collected. But there was confusion because, you see, the early believers who were alive when Jesus was on earth, they actually believed that Christ would return soon, like while they were still on earth. And when Christ did not return, some of those first century Christians began to die off. And their loved ones said, oh no, what does this do to the second coming of Christ? Will these people be included in the second coming of Christ? And that's why verse 13, the very first verse I read is so important out of 1 Thessalonians 4. We do not want you to be ignorant, brothers and sisters, about those who have died, those who have fallen asleep in Christ. We don't want you grieving like those who have no hope. In other words, don't be afraid. Notice that the very first thing that Paul had to say about the second coming was not an argument was not idle curiosity. It was not to prove some point or to frighten people. The very reason he was talking about it was pastoral care. It was concern that he might comfort people who were grieving. And he said, don't worry. We're all included if we're in Christ. And I don't want you grieving as those who have no hope. If you've lost a loved one to death, You need to know, the Bible doesn't say don't grieve. God expects us to grieve. What what Paul said was, don't grieve as people who have no hope. We grieve, but our grief is qualitatively different than those who don't have hope. So grieve, but just grieve differently than those without hope. And why do we grieve as people of hope? Because of verse 14. For this, since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, God will bring with him those who have died. So right there, it's the resurrection that gives us hope. See, the resurrection is not a standalone event. Just like the return of Christ is not a standalone event, they're each two sides, they're each a side of the same truth. The resurrection of Christ and the return of Christ, because they both have to do with his lordship over all of life and his lordship over all of death. In fact, there was in the early church a motto. In the early first century church, there was a confession of faith. And here it is, we'll show you on the screen. It simply says, Christ has died, Christ is risen, Christ will come again. And we believe that that was repeated in the early church as an act of worship. Let's try saying it aloud together. Will you say it with me? Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. Say it again. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. That's the confession that Paul was making. He was saying if you're in Christ, if you're in the risen Christ, it doesn't matter whether you're alive on earth when Jesus returns or whether you've died and you're in Christ uh, in the afterlife. You'll all be gathered together. And he said, don't worry. And then in verses uh, 15 and 16, Paul uh, gets into some very interesting imagery. And we need to remember this. When the scripture talks about the second coming, when the Bible talks about end times, the Bible always uses picturesque language. And you have to be careful what you take literally, and you have to think about what that might be meaning, and you have to understand some some history behind the words. Uh, In Paul's day... A king or an emperor would visit his subjects in a particular village 
or in a particular city. Now, for the king or the emperor to visit a particular location, there would be heralds who went ahead to prepare the way, to announce, to smooth out the road, to make everything ready. The townspeople would be all abuzz. They would be excited. And when the king appeared, when the emperor appeared, that was called the parousia. That is a New Testament word that Paul uses in verse 15 when he talks about the coming of the Lord. And the townspeople would not simply wait for the king to come through their city limit gates. That would be rude. You go out to meet the king. You go down the road to to hail the king, and then you bring and escort the king into your village. That was an act of honor. And as the king appeared, Perusia, as the king marched in, trumpets would sound because this was royalty. And as the trumpets sounded, there would be a military command, something like, Tin Hut! And people would snap to attention because royalty was passing by. Do you see now what Paul was saying? He was saying, the trumpet will sound, the cry of command, the, the sound of the archangel, and the coming of Christ will happen for his people. Very beautiful imagery. And then he says in verse 17, we'll be caught up in the air. Well, there are a lot of ways to interpret that, but, but Paul was always focused on the lordship of Jesus Christ over all creation. And, and Scripture wants us to know that an earthly Judean king may be boss over a few hundred square yards A Judean king may be boss over a few acres, and a Roman emperor might be boss over a little tract of land on the great big globe, but Jesus Christ is in the air. He's Lord over all. He's king above all kings. He's Lord above all lords. He is over Caesar and any other earthly leader and earthly earthly king. So you see, As Paul moves through this scripture, is he giving it to us so that we can frighten one another? So that we can figure out uh, cryptic signals and and, uh, try to gain a, a corner on truth that nobody else has? Did he give it to us so that we could argue with one another? No. Look at the very last verse, verse 18. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. He gives the... He gives all of this to us to encourage us, to give us hope, to give us confidence, to calm us down so that we're not afraid. That's why he gives us these truths. And so I would ask the question this way, where is the safest place in the universe, given all that's happening in the world, all that's happening uh, in our our society, where is the safest place in the world, given all the teachings about end times, Where's the safest place in the the whole universe? Well, the answer is the safest place in the world is in Christ, in Christ. The safest place in the world is in the loving care of God. The safest place in the world is in the Holy Spirit's embrace of grace that just gathers us up and cares for us. And so I want to suggest to sort of bring all of this to a focus, three responses that followers of Jesus need to have in response to the teaching about the second coming. 
And here's the first response. Self-examination. Am I in Christ? Am I ready? Am I living for the Lord in a way that honors Him? Since we don't know what any day will hold for us. Self-examination. You know, I have this book, uh, Children's Letters to God. And children, of course, say the most amazing things. And one little girl wrote a letter and said, Dear God, uh, let me know about a week before you come back so I have time to pack. Well, amen to that. We'd all like to have time to pack. But we all, didn't, we all don't have the privilege of packing before either we die and leave this world or before Jesus comes to this world. We don't have that luxury. Vance Havner was, a, was an old Baptist preacher in the 1900s and he, uh, he got tired of people trying to figure out the secrets of the second coming. And he said, well, you know, I've decided... I'm not on the time and place committee. He said, I'm on the local preparations committee. It's my job to get my life ready and to get other people ready. Self-examination. But here's a second one. I believe our response should be responsible action. I don't have any patience with the teaching of the second coming that says that we can go ahead and despoil the earth and live like we want to because none of it matters until Jesus comes back. It matters. God calls us to responsible action. Martin Luther King Jr.'s legacy was that this world matters to God and it matters to us. Somebody asked Martin Luther, the great reformer, what he would do if he knew that the world was going to end the next day. And he thought for a moment and he said, I'd plant a tree. I'd plant a tree. I'd just go on living as if everything was just going to continue going on and I'd live responsibly. I got an insight to this from a German pastor who pastored in Germany during World War II. Uh, the Christians in Germany had a terrible bind during World War II. They wanted Hitler overthrown and yet they loved their country and they were being bombed by Allied troops because they were Germans and lived in Germany. They were in a terrible bind. And he said, during those days, my family and my church struggled so much with the art of letting go, to look at the books on my shelf and, and realize tomorrow this might all be bombed and it might all be gone, to look at my house and my church building and realize tomorrow this may all be up in flames, to look at my way of life that I've lived and to see all of the material blessings and realize those might all be taken. And he said, when you learn to live letting go, an amazing thing happens. He said, you would think it would lead to an unhealthy escapism, as if none of this matters. But he said, the opposite began to happen. He said, as I looked at my books and thought, this might all be gone tomorrow, I started realizing, but I have them today. When I looked at my family and thought, we might all be gone tomorrow, I then thought, but I have them today. When I looked at our lives, I realized it may all be up in flames in another day, but today we have these things. And he said he began to understand how the first century Christians, though they knew Jesus was coming back, that actually made them more responsible to say, this matters now, and it taught them to love the world the way God loves the world. 
today and now. And the third response is longing. Paul uses that phrase in 2 Timothy 4.8, and to all of those who long for Jesus appearing. There's a longing in us to finally have peace, to finally get things right, to know that evil is not going to have the last word, that God is going to get back that which is God's, that God is finally going to make things right. There is that longing to see the world made right and to see God's kingdom come to pass. Somebody asked Billy Graham one time if he didn't just fret and stew about uh, what the world was coming to, and you remember Billy Graham's response? He said, I'm not focused on what the world's coming to. I'm focused on who's coming to the world. There's all the difference in the world between the two to just be focused on who's coming to the world. Can you say it with me one more time, that confession of faith? Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. Let's pray together. Lord, open our hearts. Open our lives to your truth. Open our hearts to the living Christ who's walking and moving among us. For just a few moments with heads bowed, I want to remind you that Jesus Christ is risen, that He is alive, that He is the one who makes all of the difference for time and eternity. And He is the one who waits as loving Savior. If you have never trusted Him as personal Lord and Savior, I want to commend Him to you. I want to invite you this morning when we stand and sing during our response time to come and share with one of us your desire uh, to enter into that relationship with Christ. Or maybe you've recently done it and you want to share that with us. We invite those of you who may have something to pray about, some prayer burden or some recommitment of your Christian life, perhaps uh, you need to come and, and pray with one of us as well. And as always, joining our church, we'd love to have you come Uh, and present yourself for membership. Whatever might be on your heart during our response time, we invite you maybe just to come and pray by yourself here at the altar. That's okay too, as God leads.